Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God, Hill City. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Aaron Nelson. I'm the Salt Company Director, which means I work with the people who sit down here in the front quite often. I'm also part of the crew that's selling some Salt Company merch out in the atrium. I know we got a lot of adults who are always asking me about it. Your opportunity is today. Get you some Salt Co. merch. Um, so we are in our third week of Advent here at Hill City. And we're continuing to walk through the series titled Echoes of Eden, where we take a look at the same Jesus we celebrate arriving during Christmas time is the same Jesus that existed back in Genesis and is still the same Jesus that exists and moves today. So week one, we talked about hope. And then last week, Jonathan taught on peace and how Jesus is the good news that brings peace to chaos. And here's where we're going today. If you're a note taker, go ahead and write this at the top of your paper. This is our direction for this morning. Jesus as Savior, and you can specifically underline that word Savior. Jesus as Savior is the foundation of joy. Him and Him alone. Let's pray. God, as we just sang, you are Savior, you are Deliverer. You're the one who meets us in our situations and you rescue us. And I pray today as we have gotten the opportunity to see the gospel proclaimed to us through baptism, that we also see it proclaimed from the pulpit and we see it proclaimed from our homes and in our workspaces. May we continue to look to you as Savior. See your name I pray. Amen. All right. Here's how I know we're all a little bit twisted. All right, if you don't agree with me as I say this, I honestly, I don't trust you. Have you ever smelled or tasted something so bad you had to get someone else to smell or taste it? Right, like what a crazy thing we do. We smell something, it's like, dude, you've got to catch a whiff of this, this is horrible. It's a crazy statement to make. But we all do it, dads, dads. In the car after, an unquestionable, after a questionable meal? Oh, yeah, I heard someone say, oh, Lord, I know. Kids have experienced this from their dad after, after some things go down in the car ride. And the dad's just waiting to see the faces of the kids react. Take it even a step further. 
Have you ever smelled or tasted something so bad that you knew if you told someone how bad it was, they wouldn't try it, so you tried to pretend it's good? I didn't have little brothers, but I had a friend who did, and we would do stuff like this all the time. Be like, dude, vinegar, it tastes great. Take a shot of vinegar. It's awesome. And they would do it, and we thought it was amazing. It's this same tactic The tactic of convincing people that something is good for them when it's actually bad that we see the serpent used in Genesis with Adam and Eve. God tells Adam, hey, you can eat from all of the trees in the garden. All of them except this one specific tree. If you eat from that tree, you'll die. Adam's like, great. Tells Eve this information we're guessing And then later, Eve is is out for a stroll in the garden, and she comes across this very tree, this one specific tree they can't eat from, and there's a serpent. And the serpent asks her, hey, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? She's like, no, God didn't say we couldn't eat from any of the trees. It's just this one specific tree we can't eat from. And if we do, we'll die. And here's what the serpent says to her. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what the serpent's saying. Hey, come here. You want to be fully alive? Trust me. Eat from this fruit. It'll be good for you. Listen to him. He says, you will be like God. Or another way, he could, another thing he could have said is you can save yourself. You can make things better. You can experience happiness if you do this one thing. I know God said it's bad, but trust me, it's actually good. This is as bold-faced of a lie as there gets. He says, you will surely not die. But the truth is, that is what allowed death to enter onto the scene, is this very act Death enters because the serpent convinces them through his lie that what's bad for them is actually good for them. And so now death, both physical and spiritual, has entered into the world. And it's lies like this that we continue to battle with today. Lies about what will make us fully alive. About what will save us, about what will bring us joy in life. And we'll get to those later, but for now, what I want to do is I want us to see how God reacts to the serpent deceiving his creation. He's not okay with it. We skip ahead a few verses to verse 15. God, speaking to the serpent, says this I will put enmity, which means hostility, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Here's what God's saying. Hey, someone's coming to crush the serpent's head. Someone's coming to destroy the prince of lies. Someone is coming to thwart evil forever. And it's this super broad statement from God. Someone. But as we look towards Luke 2 today, we're going to get specific. It's not just someone, it's the baby in the manger. 
So that's what we're going to look at. We see that the same serpent destroyer that was promised in Genesis 3.15 is the same serpent destroyer that arrives as a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in Luke 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse starting in verse 8 says this, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. So in verses 1 through 7, right before we start here in verses 8, Jesus has arrived. The Messiah is officially here. He's come of this miraculous virgin birth, and he's arrived on the scene. And then right up the road a little ways is these shepherds just chilling in a field, right? Probably just doing their job. It's nighttime. They probably hear the crickets chirping around them. They're, they're, they're probably chewing on some straw as they watch over their flock, just having a real calm night. And then all, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this massive interruption. Boom, an angel appears, with a lot of light because the glory of God shines on them. So it's this crazy situation. And just like any of us would be, they're scared. Naturally. So the angel says to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news. This phrase comes from the Greek word euangelizo. Euangelizo, and it's a similar place that we get the word gospel from. And every week when you show up to Hill City, you're going to hear this word gospel used regularly. And if you're curious, okay, gospel, good news, what, what is this good news about? It's the good news of God's redemptive work in humanity. It's what the gospel is, the good news of God's redemptive work in humanity, and when this angel appears, the, the, Greek, the Greek word he uses here actually is not just good news. It means it conveys to proclaim good news. So here's what the angel is doing. It shows, he shows up in front of these shepherds, and he's preaching the good news of God's redemptive work in and through humanity. They got a preacher this angel isn't here like a newspaper boy on the corner of a street saying, hey, come and get your news. No, he comes with special news. In other words, the angel comes on the scene and says to the shepherds, hey, I'm about to tell you the greatest news you're ever going to hear. It is good news, he says, of great joy. Let's get on the same page real quick. What do I mean when we talk about joy? What the Bible means when it talks about joy? Joy is an internal disposition. It's not a mindset like hope. It's not just a perceived sense of happiness. It's a soul posture. A soul posture that as Christians we hold as we look to Christ and not ourselves. That's the kind of joy we're talking part about here. Here's the surprising part to the shepherds and to the ones who were reading this Gospel of Luke and hearing this Gospel of Luke for the first time. It's not just that there's good news of great joy. It's who that good news of great joy is for. 
The original listeners of this gospel were a bunch of Gentiles, or another way to think about that is just the non-Jews. And up to this point in biblical history, this, our God was seen as just the God of the Jews. And so the Gentiles oftentimes felt like they were just on the in, outside looking in at what God was doing. And so the angel's announcement here is big because what does he say? He says, I bring good news of great joy for who? For all the people. All the people. This joy is available for and available to Everybody, this is a big deal in salvation history. And that's not only clear by what the angel is saying, but in who the angel is saying it to. Yes, it's available to Gentile and Jew alike, but you know who he's saying it to? A bunch of shepherds. And we can hear shepherds and we're going to be like, aw, shepherds. Like, that's, that's, that's who Jesus gets compared to, like the good shepherds. Like, a shepherd's a good thing. It's like a humble position the original readers of this, they're not hearing this and going, ah, oh, shepherds. They're going, ah, oh, shepherds? This good news came to the shepherds before it came to me? Shepherds were, had a bad reputation. They were untrustworthy, unreliable. They were seen as ceremonially unclean people because of their line of work was gross and disgusting. And so people would look at them as the socially low. So not only is this good news of great joy for the Gentile and Jew alike, but it's also for the socially low and the social outcast. This good news is literally for everybody. There's no ends of the earth that this good news doesn't reach. And I want to make sure this room understands that. This time of year, we have a lot of people who come into this building on a Sunday morning for a bunch of different reasons. My wife dragged me here. My parents have been on me all semester about getting to church, and we're in the last few weeks of the semester, so I'll come for the last little bit. Maybe I just felt like I needed to. I've been trying things all year, and none of them were working, so I figured I'd give the church thing a try. And it's easy to show up in a place like this on a Sunday and hear about this type of good news and be like, that's for other people. Please hear the angel of the Lord. This is for you. This good news of great joy is available to you. It's easy to hear things like this, and, and, and you're the kind of person who shows up in here on a Sunday morning, and you feel like the roof should fall in on your head because of how messed up your life is as you arrive. You're like, I'm at rock bottom. My, my life is such a mess. If the people around me knew what was happening in my life, the way I was living it, they'd kick me out of here in a heartbeat. Hear the angel of the Lord. This news is for you. It's not more for the people on your left and your right. This news is for everybody. There's no soul, no heart that this good news doesn't reach. If it can come to a shepherd, the good news can come to you. But what's the occasion for this joy? We know it's good news of great joy. We know it's for all people. But what's the occasion? What brings this joy? The angel goes on to clarify that in the next verse. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. If you have your Bibles, you can underline that word Savior right there. In the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's talk about this word Savior. I think it's really easy as followers of Jesus to get used to this word. 
that this word can lose its power when we read it or when it's said. That we forget the gravity that the word holds. Here's what the meaning of Savior is, a rescuer and a deliverer. That's what a Savior is. Let me paint a picture for you. There's someone stuck in a burning house. And there's no way they can get out of this burning house. An imminent death is right there. There's no way they can escape. And they know things have went south. And it's hopeless. Here's what a Savior does. The Savior kicks in the door and comes out and drags the person out. That's a rescuer. That's a deliverer. That's a Savior. And whether we know it or not, Christian or non-Christian alike, we all believe in Saviors. We all turn to saviors to bring us joy, to make us feel fully alive, to rescue us. Matt Chandler, who is a a pastor down at the Village Church in Texas, talks about four different saviors that we turn to that are not the savior. We're going to talk about three of them, and here they are. I'm going to go and list them out for you. It's the savior of self, the savior of others, and the savior of religion. Three different saviors we turn to besides the savior himself. We'll start with the savior of self. Here's what the savior of self believes. To be fully alive means to be focused on my own desires. We take this message in constantly. It's all around us. You pull up your Instagrams, your TikToks, your your Twitters, your Facebook, and this message is right in front of our eyes constantly. We consume it like crazy. Things like, take the journey inward. Focus on yourself. Love yourself. And because of that, self has become the God of our age. We worship self. One of the things I found interesting as I was working through this savior of self was how to be, to view, when we view others above ourself in modern day, it's actually a vice. It's actually something we don't do well. People will literally say things like, you're just too unselfish of a person. You just care for others too much. Do you hear how that battles and conflicts against the message of Christ? Because what does he say? He came not to be served, but what? To serve. But culture says, no, I'm here to be served. And self becomes our God. Instead of going to the Savior, we become one. The self and the desire of the self become our God. So that's savior of self. The next one, savior of others. Savior of others. And here's what the savior of others believes. To be fully alive means to find someone slash someones to complete me. If I find the right person or the right people, I will be made whole. Here's the form some of these take. If I can find the spouse or the friends, or the coworkers, or I have the baby, or maybe even if I find the mistress, I'll feel fulfilled. Coming up on five years of marriage in July this year, 
And we had some really great wisdom early on before we even got married where they were like, hey, Aaron and Tatum, you guys aren't going to complete each other. Like once you get married, you're not going to be made whole now that you've arrived at the destination of marriage. You're going to have to fight that idea. And I was hearing them say this, and I'm like, totally. Right, that's only the spot God can fill. I know my spouse cannot make me whole. And that made a lot of sense logically, but my heart and the bend of my heart felt differently. Flash forward six months into our marriage, and I feel lonely. And so what do I do? I go to my wife to try to save me from my loneliness. And she can't, because of course she can't. That's not her job. But because she can't, what happens to me? I feel more lonely. And so I go back to her again to fix my loneliness, and it doesn't work. And so I'm a step into this cycle of asking her to save me and her not being able to. And then I'm feeling like, what's happening? Why isn't this solving my issues? But what I'm actually doing unintentionally is I'm asking her to become my God. I'm asking her to save me, and that's a role she can never play, and I should never expect her to play. Savior of self, Savior of others, and the final one, Savior of religion. And here's what the Savior of religion believes. To be fully alive means to be good. To be fully alive means to be good. And don't just think spiritual religion. Think ideological religion. The ideas that we subscribe to in life that become our religion. A couple of examples, here's one, religion of stuff. In modern day, we call this materialism quite often. And this religion says, hey, if I can get enough of of the house, the car, the boat, the shoes, the designers, if I get enough of that stuff, I'll be good and others will see me as good. And so I'll be complete in life. My stuff can save me. Another one, religion of politics. Politics. That if I'm just politically good in life and I convince those around me to also be politically good alongside of me, then we can save our world. Listen to me. I believe as citizens of the kingdom of God, there is a place for us to function and take a role in the political realm. But here's where it becomes destructive is when it's no longer about taking place to care for people. It's when our, when our, when our politics become on a level playing field as God himself. And then politics has become our religion. And here's the final one. Religion of morality. Religion of morality, the one that says, if I just live my life well, if I just give enough, if I attend church enough, if I, if, if I read enough, if I do all the things enough, I can save me from the burning house. I can save myself. And it actually turns into a posture of self-righteousness. A posture that's no longer about worship, It's about earning. Savior of self, savior of others, and savior of religion. You know what all three of these have in common? They make really, really bad gods. Why? Because they all fail. 
They can't save you. They can't actually rescue you. And so what ends up happening is when we place our joy in these types of saviors, we're continuously trying to figure out how to make up for our saviors failing us. A couple years ago, I was up in Wisconsin with the SALT Network. They had an event for SALT directors and SALT pastors to be up there and learn about how to have a healthy soul and how to hold on to, to joy in the midst of a, a role of pastoring and shepherding. And as we're up there, they bring this guy in to come teach us about this. And early on, he throws up a picture of a boat like this. Not great quality. found the picture on Google. Don't judge me. He throws up a picture like this. And he starts to explain how oftentimes what we do is we'll take our joy, we'll take our soul, and we'll place them on the boat. And then we'll focus on how the boat's doing. And when it's calm, when the waters are calm on the ocean of our lives, the boat seems great. I have a ton of joy, and my soul is really, really healthy. And then he asks the question, but what happens when a storm comes? What happens when the rain comes? What happens when it feels like the boat's about to capsize? Our joy goes out the door. Our soul starts to thirst for something else. And as I'm listening to him say this, I go, oh, that's me. It's totally me. I know exactly what he's saying. As I stand up here today, I struggle with this, doing what I'm doing right now. Like I can easily place the joy in the health of my soul on how I perform as I stand up here and teach people. And if I feel like I do good, then I'm like, man, my life's awesome. I have a healthy, I'm at a healthy place in my heart. But my bend, the pull I feel is what if I come up here and bomb? Then all of a sudden my joy is in question. I feel it in my success from up here. I feel it in the success of my job. I feel it in the success of my marriage. I feel how I put my joy in the health of my soul on the boat itself. And I know those circumstances exist in this whole room. There's marriages in this room where the boat's gotten real rocky and you don't know what's happening, and you feel confused, and you're unsure, and you feel like, well, where's my joy in this marriage? Should I just step out and run from it because I'm not feeling joy anymore? And here's the question I want to humbly ask you to ask yourself, because it's the question I have to be willing to ask as I walk off this stage later. What is my joy based on? What is my joy based on? Whether it's your marriage or your friendships or your work or your success, what is your joy based on? Are you hoping that things like this are going to save you? Because when we look to self or others or religion as saviors, they fail us. They don't lead us to being fully alive why? Because they're all fickle saviors. Every single one of them. And that's why today what I want to do is I want to remind us of where true joy comes from. Where true joy comes from 
And it comes from the serpent destroyer. And that serpent destroyer is also the baby that arrived in a manger. And his name is Jesus. And we look to Jesus as Savior. We keep talking about this word Savior a lot. And and I want to make sure we understand what we need saved from. What do we need rescued or delivered from? And it's a good question. We're going to find the answer in Ephesians. We look to Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Hill City, this is our burning house. This is our burning house. This is the exact thing we need rescued from. Our burning house is that we follow the course of the world. Our our burning house is that we live in the passions of our flesh and that we carry out the desires of the body and mind. Our burning house is that we are children of wrath by nature and we need saved from that death. It's the same death that Adam and Eve need saved from. We need to be saved from our addictions, our selfishness, our idolatry, our pride, our sexual brokenness, our hatred, our judgment. And the list goes on and on and on. And what we do is we scramble to figure out how to save ourselves from that. We take fire extinguishers in a raging house fire and try to put it out with fickle saviors, and we can't. Nelson, I thought you said this was good news of great joy. It is. Because Ephesians 2 goes on. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Hear this next line. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He'll say, do you want to be fully alive? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to others. Don't look to religion. As Ephesians says it, what makes us alive? Christ. You want to be fully alive, look to the baby in the manger. Look to the God that took on flesh. Look to the perfect life that we cannot live. Look to the death that we deserve. Look to the empty tomb. Hill City, you want to be fully alive. Look to Jesus as Savior who succeeded in every way in which we failed and stood strong in every way in which other saviors crumbled. That's where our saving grace comes from. Nowhere else. And he tells us as much in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because... It had been founded on the rock. 
When we build our lives on world-made saviors, they fail. And guys, we feel it. We feel the saviors we choose that aren't Christ as Savior failing around us constantly. We're trying to pick up the pieces. I do it. We feel the weight in the holes that these fickle saviors provide. But when we build our lives on the foundation that is Christ, there is joy. Because of who he is and what he's done. So I'm in Wisconsin, and this guy's teaching us about how to have healthy souls and, and how to hold on to joy in our lives. And he's talking, and he, he actually zooms out from that picture, and this, a picture similar to this pops up. And if you look on the far left of this picture, there's an anchor down below. And he says, oftentimes what we can do, this is what I'm thinking as I'm listening to him, Oftentimes what we do is we get too focused on the boat and what's happening to the boat above the surface that we lose sight that there's an anchor below. And that anchor is Jesus. That anchor is what holds us. The anchor is what gives us joy. But we get too focused on what's happening to the boat on the surface because what happens below the surface of the ocean where the anchor's at? It's much calmer. There's not big old waves down there. There's not storm. There's not wind. It's much calmer. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the anchor that holds our boat. Jesus is the anchor that we look to. I feel the burden and the weight of what's happening to families in this room and across the city. Loss of loved ones, divorces, miscarriages, so many unimaginable, heartbreaking things. Can I remind you this morning of the anchor that is Jesus? And just because the anchor exists doesn't mean that it takes away the pain and the hurt and the struggle of what's happening above the surface. But it does remind us that we, in the midst of any circumstance, can still have joy. Can I remind the person in the room who's really unsure of their future? Feels really foggy moving forward and you're not sure what's in store for your life and so you're scared and you're overcome with fear at times and you feel like your joy is teetering in life. Can I remind you of the anchor that is Christ? And that there's joy that he's provided. In the midst of fear, in the midst of happiness, in the midst of success, in the midst of failure, he continues to provide joy. To be fully alive means to look to Christ as the foundation of our joy. And just to remind you, joy is the sole posture we have as we look to Christ and his goodness, not as we look to us and our goodness. Our joy never comes from us. We don't save ourselves and neither do other things of this world. It only comes because Christ is good. If you're serving communion, go ahead and start to get ready to get in place. As they're getting ready, here's how I want to end. I want to end by being reminded of that goodness. 
the goodness that Christ is and the goodness of what he has done. So we're going to go to Hebrews 12. And in Hebrews, the writer, he's encouraging Christians to keep persevering and continuing the race of the faith. And he says, as we do so, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hear this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, while heading towards the most horrific form of torture and murder that many people knew at this time, headed to that full of joy. How? It's not because the circumstances were great. It's not because he was excited about what he was about to experience. He knew that on the other that joy on the other side came at a brutal cost. But hear me. This is how we know the goodness of our Savior. His joy, despite a brutal cost, was saving us. That was Jesus' joy. It wasn't on the other side of doing something fun. It wasn't on the other side of something real light. It was on the other side of a horrific death. That was his joy, and now, Hill City, he is our joy. And he's the only one that provides sustained joy. It's only when we look to Jesus as Savior that we really, truly have a foundation of joy. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for being a rescuer. Thank you for being a deliverer. Thank you for providing joy and working towards joy even with the reality of death and pain on the other side as you headed towards that cross. I pray this morning, as we consider the, the Savior that you are, that we're able to reflect and shed the Saviors that we try to replace you with. May you continue to allow us to, to look more and more to you as Savior, to look more and more to you for joy and less to the, what this world has to provide. It's your name we pray. Amen.